Hello and welcome back to season three of Climate Conversations with Irish Doctors for the Environment. Here we talk to thought leaders, academics, change advocates in the fields of biodiversity, climate, water quality and health. Really to further the bridge between the natural systems upon which we depend and our day job which is health. Uh, my name is Sean Owens and today I'm delighted to be talking to Catherine Cleary. Uh, against the backdrop of COP27 in Egypt and COP15 in Canada, um, we were delighted to talk to Catherine who is an accomplished and award-winning author in her own right, a food critic. But the reason we want to talk to her today is because of a project that she's involved with. She's co-founder which is called Pocket Forests. So Catherine, can you tell us a little bit about this project, how it came to be, and what it really is? That's right, yeah, Pocket Forests was born in 2020, um, kind of in a response to being locked down to our 2K area. My co-founder, Ash Conrad-Jones and I, we live in in the Dublin 8 in the south inner city, and we have the ignominy of having the least amount of green space per person in the country. So when we suddenly couldn't get to the Phoenix Park or even Stevens Green, I think was out of the 2K, um, it felt extremely um, oppressive, I think, just to be surrounded by so much non-green, you know, the small areas that we had. Um, we were using, you know, the parks, the local parks and things were being used to the to the hilt. Um, and Ash came across this idea called Tiny Forests. It uh, had originated in Japan with a botanist called Akira Miyawaki. And Japan is an incredibly forested country. I think it's up around 60 or 70 percent forest cover as a country. But it's also obviously an incredibly urban country. And, and Akira loved forests and he was fascinated by their their structure, I suppose, their kind of 3D nature. You know, the fact that they don't just use the bottom layer of the soil or, or, you know, that that one layer system, they've got so many layers. They've got a tall tree, top canopy layer, mid tree, uh, you know, a shrub layer and then ground cover. So and you can have vines and things, you know, crawling up through these. So you have maybe seven different systems all coming together. So he devised a method where you could plant if you chose your plants based on what would grow here naturally. If you just walked away and left it, what would happen over decades? choose those plants, make sure that they would grow in this part uh, of Japan and put them together. And so we put together this system um, called the Miyawaki method of planting trees. So a lot of the time when we plant trees, especially in urban areas, um, it sort of comes from the forestry model where you're planting a tree with a view to its value being in when you cut it down. So you give it enough space for it to grow to a full width, you know, so if it's a large tree like an ash or an oak tree, you're going to plant it maybe five metres away from its nearest companion tree. Um, but that's not how forests seed themselves. If you go into a forest that's not being grazed or, or crop, you know, um, mown or nobody's managing it, you'll see all kinds of small seedlings very close together. Um, in deciduous forests where, you know, they're still getting light on the forest floor because it's, it's quite light leaf cover. Um, so his method involves planting these native trees very close together and maybe three plants per square metre, which would be a completely the opposite way of forestry or even urban foresting mainly, where we plant these lone trees. And we love lone trees. I think architects love lone trees. They look, they look lovely, you know. 
but actually trees don't grow by themselves um but they yeah. might too on an african savanna setting and there there's this wild wacky theory that that's possibly where this love of lone trees comes from it comes from our original ancestors because we all derive from from groups, groups of people who came from that culture but uh, i think that's probably an out there theory what we actually know is that the forests that grow in this part of the world um are forests they're not lone they're never lone trees well, so I'm looking anyway, out my window at um a series of trees that are about 10, 10, 20 metres apart. Um, it looks yeah. like solitary confinement. There's usually a, a sad looking splint in, involved in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This is Jake there. There's a, you know, there's a bit of wire that people are putting rubbish into. And yeah, it's, it's, it's not, okay. it's not a happy situation for trees. Like they love, they love company. They love company of other trees, of other species, preferably a lot of biodiversity as well. So monocultures of trees are a really bad idea. We now know from losing our ash. Um, forests that uh, you know you get one pest and if you've got a monoculture it's going to it's going to decimate everything so the the Akira Miyawaki method is based on this diversity of planting mimicking a natural system in as much as we can obviously the natural system is is the best way for for trees to go um, but bring and then bringing it into urban areas where you would least expect a forest to be situated um, so it came to Europe in about 2015, uh, a Dutch environmental group brought uh, an Indian um, engineer called uh, Shubendra Sharma, who was working in a Toyota factory. And Akira Miyawaki came to this factory to build, to, to build well, they are kind of like building, put put a forest outside the factory. And, and Shubendra just fell in love with this whole mm. idea. Being an engineer, he put together... A kind of a how-to of, of of making these forests and called a tiny forest um, and that's what the Dutch group brought to Europe and back in 2020 Ash and I phoned up Dan from IBN the Dutch group and said this is a great idea how do we do this and, you know can well, we do I mean, talking about seedlings I mean, I mean this must have there must have been a, a seed somewhere in yourself or or Ash that this was awoken when you were exposed to it I mean was this always going to happen? It just took COVID, or um... yeah, I I think we both we were both feeling that anxiety around climate and biodiversity as well. I mean, we we often talk about climate, but I think the biodiversity crisis is equally, if not more, important in some in some respects, and they're both linked very um, very much. Um, and especially, I was, it was a lot to do with our neighbourhood because suddenly, with this model, we were looking around at these small patches of ground and saying, actually, this could be you know, a, a garden-sized pocket forest because the Dutch uh, group, while they were putting in these sort of tennis court-sized forests, they were also doing them in gardens, which were six metres square. So basically the size of a single car parking space. And it just cracked open this idea of bringing nature into the places where pe most people live. You know, most of us live in urban areas now. Um, that disconnection between... The natural world and that sense of well you've got to get in a car and go to the Dublin mountains to to be in nature you know that's just not available to everybody um, and we really like to work in communities where you know there there is no or very little quality green space um, because there's an, a there's a, a social equality element to this as well you know the 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 more expensive the wealthier neighborhoods in Dublin are the are the neighborhoods with more tree cover so um yeah, it was it was all of those things. And I was reviewing restaurants at the time. Ash was working in events and both of those were the hardest hit um, 
activities in lockdown. So it seemed to be a message from the universe of, right, time to do this new thing. Recoil, yeah. yeah. I do, I, I mean, I was wondering, because, um, of course, we met down in um, Kilkenny Saver Festival, and mm -hmm. um, uh, yourself, and there was um, Owen Dalton, who has been retelling the story of Irish rainforests. And I, I just kind of wonder, is it any coincidence that you are um, a storyteller? Um, and that you seem to be retelling the story because I'm someone who just would have accepted that Dublin 8 is meant to be concrete and um, that's just the way it is and Phoenix Park isn't so far away but um, yeah the, you're, you're kind of challenging the status quo that that small patch can be something else and there can be benefits. Yeah and I think that we, that story of forests and trees is something we've been very close to for a long, long time. And But my generation is probably the first generation to lose that connection with soil and land. And I mean, a lot of our work is with the soil. Um, I was listening to Anya Murray and Brian McGlynn's great podcast, uh, Root and Branch, recently. And they do, you know, six episodes, one, one episode each dealing with a native tree. And the, the hazel episode was fascinating because I didn't realise that the Irish word for hazel, uh, which is quill, is the origin of the word quilcha, which is forest. So obviously, you know, the, there was this incredible forested world that we, our ancestors, lived in not very long ago. Um, and we felt very safe there. And, you know, our bodies and our physical um you know I've, I've read done some reading about forest bathing again going back to the Japanese idea um where there's there's good studies showing that your blood pressure is lowered when you're in a forest setting if somebody takes a walk or you know is is in a natural setting um they respond with with enormous resonance uh, there's something that resonates with us my sort of personal Epiphany, I think, on this whole thing was back in 2019, just before the the lockdown. I did a, a two day native woodland training course with uh, with Quilcha, and the, I had been on a mailing list for years after the Millennium uh, Tree Project. I don't know if you remember that when every household got a tree to celebrate the millennium, and I kept I was still on the mailing list, and I kept getting every now every few years I'd get these you know native woodland training courses. They're basically aimed at landowners or foresters who want, and I was neither, and and I wasn't really there as a journalist either. I wasn't really sure why I was there, but I knew I was interested. And the first day was lots of presentations about how you would do the scheme and what's involved and foresters talking about, you know, difficulties with the rhododendron and deer and all the things that are threatening our native forests. But the second day we went out, it was very wet weather, but we went to, a, it was near an Iscaria farm where a woman had deer fenced uh, an existing oak woodland and had planted new uh, native trees. And something about standing in her old, I mean, they weren't very, very old, but they were, I would say, probably more than a century old patch, very small patch of oak woodlands and, and seeing these little seedlings growing up on the ground because they weren't being eaten by deer anymore and, and holly seedlings and things all just generating themselves. It was, you know, something in me said, I want to be part of this world. Mm -hmm. I want to do something in this field, uh, literally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I do. I mean, you, I don't think that's a woolly thing because um, you know, there are studies that show that um, parental intuition when their child is sick is you know, more predictive than fancy scanners or, or lab tests. And um, um, yeah, that gut instinct. Um, there's um yeah, there's a bit of a metaphor there, especially with the microbiome. It's it's um, the, the predictor of healthy gut microbiome is diversity. 
and, yeah. and you're telling us now we shouldn't be um and this but i often think about it when we buy those yakults that are you know one strain of um <laughs> or something and you know what you're quite clearly saying is um the the benefit is um is the compactness of that tiny forest and the um the number of species and uh, the different types heights and uh, all feeds into soil and there's all these lovely um overlapping ideas that um are consistent aren't they really so much i mean so many strands kind of open up for us then in terms of soil you know the soil was part of what we 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 differed from the tiny forest model a little bit partly because it was very mechanized and they'd send in big diggers and they'd dig out a meter of soil and add in amendments mix it all together and put it back in and we just felt a that was really expensive and also we don't know how to drive diggers and we'd rather do it with you know tools that people could use um so we use much more slow methods where we're just layering materials on top of the soil mm. uh, because actually nature never digs uh, other you know other than if there's an animal involved you know a pig or something that's rooting around in soil and digging it up nature doesn't dig you know things fall on top and then the the, the soil life itself brings the nutrition down into the roots of the plants so we really do that low and slow mulching, you know, repurposing food waste and composting and all of those um, sort of juicy ideas about it. And again, it taps into that idea of using the things that we throw away to create something new, using cardboard a lot of the time to maybe shade out the grass that might be growing there already to give the trees a, a bit of a start when we plant them. So we, we typically would spend maybe... Um, we do a workshop with people where we would do that soil preparation and then we would leave that for up to three months maybe sometimes even longer four or five months uh, before we would plant um so that the soil has you know had generated lots of life in there and that the trees are again we're adding lots of woody material because in forests you have all of this um you know, timber or branches and things that are falling on the forest floor and nobody is removing them. And we now know that the fungal network is making great use of that food resource yeah, to make these mycorrhizal fungi that cooperate with plant roots and um, provide all kinds of nutrients to them. What was fascinating, I can't remember who was telling us, but uh, the, the horticulture training used to tell, you know, professionals that plants did something very stupid, that they made all of this sugar from sunlight, but that they wasted you know, 10 or 20 or 40 percent of it, um, you know, they couldn't figure out where was this, uh, the energy they were taking from the sun, where it was going. But now the understanding is much, it, it's a much more collaborative system that the plants are taking the, the, you know, photosynthesizing the sunlight, turning it into carbohydrates, and they're giving some of that to the soil life because the soil life can access nutrients um, and give them nutrients from the soil that they can't get. So there is this incredible collaboration um, between roots and mycorrhizal fungi and bacteria and all kinds of critters that we don't even, we can't even culture in a lab at this point to find out what they are. It's very, um, it's very humbling really, isn't it? Um, and I always think when you, when you talk to any sort of climate expert, they usually preface what they're going to say with, well, there's so much we don't know. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, there's a bit of Dunning-Kruger effect, I think, where um, the more you look at this, uh, the, the more humbled you are by the lack of knowledge. And that's actually something I wanted to ask you. I was, I was looking at some of the vignettes you have on, um, on your website. And the, the, um, the site visits when you have the community out, 
they look like great fun. And yeah. it's and I think you mentioned that one of them we, we have non experts. So is that important that it's not the celebrity gardener <laughs> coming down yeah. with the digger, as you yeah. said, um, that this is something that um any community uh, with a bit of direction uh, can achieve whatever the scale. Yeah, I think it's really important that, you know, we're, and we, we aren't experts. I mean, one of the first things we did when we started out was talk to experts and get as much expertise as we could and try and, um, you know, trial what we were doing and see would it work and, and various different types of trees, how we could plant them in small spaces and, you know, still manage them so that those spaces weren't completely lost to, to you know, hugely overgrown trees. Um, but, yeah, I think we still... we when we go and do that soil preparation, we work alongside people and it's a great way to talk to people. I think that, you know, comes back to the old metal thing as well of having the chats while you're doing what would be a boring job if you weren't, if you're doing it by yourself. But the fact that you're, and actually a lot of time we work in schools. So the kids are delighted to be yeah. not in a maths class or, um, you know, but actually when you start talking to them and saying, look, this is why we're doing this with the soil and this is what we're adding in. And they can see a real difference after that time. You know, they can put a fork in the ground and see earthworms that weren't there, you know, a few months earlier when they, when they were began the process. So it's quite, um, it's quite a good teaching while doing or learning while doing model. And we always say we're constantly, I don't see a day when we won't be learning things in this project because we don't know the, you know, a tenth of it really. Um, and we're trying to, we're really just trying to facilitate an ecosystem to happen. And it would happen by itself. You know, a, a lot of these areas, if nobody mowed them, um, trees would seed themselves uh, very quickly into those areas, depending on the kind of seed bank that's around the area. Um, but we still have to get to that point where that's seen as good management of public spaces. You know, and I, th I think we're getting there in a little bit of a way, but I'd love to see it accelerated a bit more. And I think the pocket forest model is an interesting one because you can create these small pockets of intensively planted uh, trees and shrubs and then you can let that a wider area around that, um, you know, be unmown or unmanaged and see what happens and see does this small pocket of trees become a bigger forest by itself? Because, you know, I, I reckon it would. Yeah, because so much because um, you kind of mentioned earlier, there's been a generational amnesia about nature. I'm kind of guilty of that, I think. <laughs> um, and um you know that that involving children seems to be important, um, most intrinsic. That in any of your vignettes, they're they're out there. And um, um, so my entry point to it was um, uh, through social prescribing that this is a low carbon way of um, uh, dealing with community problems because um, maybe twenty to thirty percent of what um, general practitioners see are social um, issues that we treat medically, which doesn't um, perhaps add up. Um, and so social prescribing has uh, been fully integrated into the uh, NHS and we're, we're playing catch up here. Mm -hmm. But as you said, there, there is this evidence for green spaces, blue spaces. And um, when you read it, it's really, it's really nice. It chimes, you know. Yeah, um, yeah it, there's something really. And I mean, I, I suppose I'm, I'm speaking from a privileged position of having, you know, had the experience of not having to work the land I think you know you can get romantic about oh it's great to be in contact with the soil and it's not that you know I I, I would imagine there's a whole generation of people who ran screaming from that life into a much more comfortable less weather you know dependent life but at the same time 
by saying, oh, well, we can live in cities and we don't have to have any inter interactions with soil and plants. And, you know, actually, I don't think we can. I think there is there, there's still a human, a very human need to be part of, or feel part of the system or just check in with or or, or, or or pay attention to it. You know, that there's something that you get from paying attention. We're, we're actually just trying to figure out how to launch a, a new sort of social media campaign this year called 2023, where we would ask people to just go and take a look at a tree and check in with us every, you know, few weeks, every month, maybe for 2023 about their tree and tell us about their tree and what, what it's doing. And, you know, are there leaves on it? Or is it blossoming? You know, is, are the leaves turning? Because there's a lot to see over the space of a year. Mm -hmm. Um with a tree or with any plants in your neighborhood um but there's something i suppose about trees that is is a bigger scale and slightly more dramatic maybe than a watching a, a nettle well no when you, when you when you stare at them long <laughs> enough you find out there's um yeah there's lots uh, there's lots going on um provided they're not all spaced out and yeah <laughs> <laughs> well even um, if they are they can be very beautiful but yeah they, they they do strike you as a little bit lonely i think after a while um well then, is there um, so if you just park the uh, mental health benefits and perhaps the physical health benefits of spending time in nature, um, do, I mean, do you think that pocket forests and other similar projects could be part of the solution to Ireland's forestry problems um, or climate problems, or are they more perhaps totemistic that um, people see nature, they understand that it's it's not um, us and them rural urban um that it's important and perhaps they'll they'll talk to their politicians about it on the on the doorstep is there a dual kind of purpose yeah i think that's it's a huge uh for a small project and we would never claim any sort of you know we will solve we will absorb carbon or we will solve the biodiversity crisis with what we're doing you know it's it's such a sliver of smallness that we we are managing to do and we need to do this at scale in larger parts of Ireland where, you know, farmland that is being farmed, and this is what we were talking about in, at Saver, um, could be farmed with trees integrated into that farming system and uh, much more biodiverse ways of farming that don't kill the soil life or, or kill. I mean, we worry about birds and insects. I worry deeply about what we're doing to our soil because that's where all our food comes from. And when we kill the life in there, there then you know there, there's a very serious cul-de-sac um approaches there so but i think you know uh, uh, somebody recently was saying that they'd done some figures and you know 65 percent of the land in ireland is owned by six percent of, of the people you know it's very hard for somebody who wants to do a wilding project to actually get their hands on on land and and do that at scale um and it's you know the land prices are are not getting any cheaper anytime soon um so i think that's why we like to we, we like the idea of community greening projects where communities are involved in you know both designing and plant preparing the soil and planting their own green spaces really high quality green spaces that they can you know especially in schools when we often work with transition year students and they say look these trees that you're planting now that are knee high or waist high they will be taller than you by the time you're you're doing your leaving search and you can come and maybe sit beside one and and you know alleviate your exam stress so it just becomes about belonging to a place and being connected to a place and being 
empowered to to say yes I can plant a tree it's not something that is beyond my ability to do that um but yeah it, it's you know the whole story and going back to that what you were saying about storytelling that whole story of trees and forests there's there's a, a thing and I'm, I'm hearing it quite a lot from farmers about how you would only put trees on bad land you wouldn't waste good land by putting trees on it by and and there's an economic reason for that it's because trees you know land that has trees on it is less valuable in economic yes. terms yes. than land that is uh you know pasture with um fencing around it and no no hedgerows uh, and, you and know, that's a that's a generational story isn't it that um you know, it, was, it was handed down and you, you know don't change the land someone worked hard to make that productive and yeah. um yeah you know, an EU diktat doesn't change that. Um, it's a no. cultural shift that's needed. So um, I agree that that storytelling. And I mean, even, even as you said, in Kilkenny, you look out the window and uh, most people see, um, you know, Borbia and it's green fields and it's rosy, but you see lost opportunities. You see you know, desolation, really. Um, yeah. Uh, and that's not to detract from, um, we have relatively good standards uh, in Ireland, but it's... Um, as you said, monoculture, and it's a story that we're told that this is what we do, and uh, there is yeah. no other way. And that's a very, very recent story. I mean, that that idea of these very strong cultural associations to that kind of farming is very recent. You know, there wasn't, you know, we, we could argue that a small field system with hedgerows around it, that's agroforestry. You know, that's where animals were happy because they had shelter and they had browsing um, feed from, from trees as well. This is the other fascinating thing I was learning recently about some work with the Irish Agroforestry Forum and that animals eat the leaves of willow and things like that when they're feeling unwell or you know if there's some kind of medical issue uh, that they have and they can self-medicate with these plants which willow is a source of the the compound that makes aspirin you know so there is an anti-inflammatory element to that for an animal and an animal knows this which is to my mind absolutely fascinating um but the animals all love that the leaves of trees and and there's an agroforestry system in the north where the ash that they planted many years ago isn't dying back as quickly because the leaves where the spores that are developing that are killing the ash are being eaten by sheep um so you know there's again the sheep are keeping themselves healthy and keeping the trees slightly healthier as well so there is this web of life um in our system and for a long time we've been kind of cutting through the threads of that because economically it made for higher production you know your your ryegrass field which is heavily uh, fertilized with um synthetic fertilizer which comes from fossil fuels um worked with tractors and minimum labor and using a breed of cow that produces x you know exponentially more milk than smaller native you know smaller breeds that would have been dual purpose cows all of those pieces of your jigsaw lead you to that i think dairy income of 148,000 euro which you know that is nothing close that you know that that's a really generous um you know a lot of money for a farmer to be making from land and they're only making that money because they've made those those decisions so in order for them not to make those decisions we have to start paying farmers to farm for for nature for carbon for ecosystem protection not for maximum production um but again 
uh, culturally we're being told that that's the success story when actually environmentally and socially and <laughs> you know in all kinds of other ways it's a disaster story but do you feel that that story is changing now and um, you know whether it's um, the questions that perhaps um, news anchors ask um, or if it's uh, the variety of literature you see in the newspapers or in the um, specialty magazines um, and even as you've sort of speak to it there because you have such a breadth of um, partnerships whether it's Irish agroforestry or if it's um, schools or partnerships and I was going to ask you any hospitals in there and you mentioned the hospital <laughs> study in your in your column um, why are yeah, hospitals we, knocking we down your door? We'd love to work with the hospital. We have actually planted on the on a balcony in the children's hospital in Crumlin, um, which is obviously going to be moved to the new children's hospital. But they had a very, very bleak balcony outside the neonatal unit. So we did some container planting there during the summer, um, even just to let parents and children be able to look out through the window and see something waving in the breeze rather than these kind of awful um, grey railings, which is what they were looking at. So that was that was a real joy. We've worked with two hospices as well, um, because uh, and actually they put a lot of work into their garden. You know, they're gardening volunteers and they design uh, the hospices around open spaces. I mean, it, it seems to we do we do things very well at that stage in in medical care, uh, in that green green infrastructure or green um, plants and, and trees are thought about very deeply I think for designing for, or certainly in these two hospices in um, in Blanchardstown and Rohini um, so yeah we'd love to we would love to um, get involved with the hospital and and I think for staff as well it, it's tremendously exciting not only to create something you know it's a great team building exercise to work with somebody and yeah. you learn things about people when you see how they can use a spade or you know whether they're good at or whether they enjoy that kind of thing and then to be able to use it as an amenity is uh, we think we think it's brilliant um but then we would <laughs> well you know you mentioned like expertise. Going back to, sorry just going back you were saying about the whole um you know that that there is a shift happening in farming and i think actually the wheels are coming off the juggernaut in a way because fertilizer costs are only going to go up now with you know the ukraine ukrainian crisis russian access to gas um the commodity prices for what farmers are producing at scale are are you know they have no control over that and if the price drops then you know all of that heavy investment in dairy. And you also have the spectre, uh, it quite, uh, quite a serious one, although it's being downplayed, of a, a protein commodity being made in a lab without the use of farmers or animals. Mm -hmm. um, and that this new food will come along a little bit like mobile phones replacing you know, the film camera um, to replace our, our, what is predominantly our you know, major industrial output. Um, so there are so many reasons that this is not as, as solid a success story as it looks right now. And the other asterisk I, I often think about is, um, and you know, there's sometimes a, I feel um, a sense of paranoia from um, remnant agricultural community that uh, there's a, a move afoot to displace them. But from my seat, I always feel like there's no safer bet in Ireland. You know, um, but the one massive asterisk is what does it look like? at 2.6 degrees or wherever we're going um yeah. i don't know why what like, anything looks like and then i wonder well you know there's the hard bits i think of climate and biodiversity or, or social equality which i don't think we've ever really achieved globally um 
how do we wean ourselves off our energy dependence? We're we're so consumptive. You know, pocket forests. Can we just get on with it? You know, this seems to be this seems to be the easy part of the equation. Um, and yeah. you know, uh, healthier diets. That's that's something we don't need a technology for that. It's kind of it's there. Yeah, and and I think I mean, I'm just reading a book called Active Hope at the moment, which is really interesting. And you know, it, it, there's something about being able to see the problems very clearly and not just running away from them because they are very frightening. But also being able to see that we are at a point in human history where we know we have all of the solutions. We know exactly the things that we need to do to get ourselves across to the the next stage where we can live in the Holocene era, which is what this is, you know, in in global terms of of the livability of this planet and this this Holocene era where we have this climate and this soil and, and natural life that keeps us alive, that can last for another 50,000 years if we don't break our, our you know temperature barriers and get to, as you say, 2.6 or, or worse ahead um, and, you know, cause the extinction of, of mass extinction of life that supports us. Um, so the point, you know, this point about active hope is that there are hugely hopeful signs that there's a massive transition happening in energy. Clean energy is now cheaper than the the dirty stuff, and and that's gonna that the market is gonna respond to that by pumping resources into clean energy. Um, the biodiversity end of things is it's more I suppose it's more personally, and and you know you're you're involved. You're, a lot of your work is talking about people's diets. You know it, it's easier I suppose to plug something into a, a socket where the energy is coming from a, a windmill then or you know a, you, you don't really know where the energy is coming from whereas if you're actually transitioning into eating something different or you know it, it's very much more there's a lot more things to unpick um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, do, no, I do often wonder should I've just joined you know healthcare professionals against tobacco it would be <laughs> much more straightforward um <laughs> But um, I think what we're for, and you know, I mean, going back to active hope, we're for healthy diets wherever along the spectrum that might be in terms of yeah. plant-based or processed or ruminant or whatever it might be, yeah. and and pro-green, pro-green sites, pro-blue spaces, and um, out of COVID was born an active hope with you, Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> and and yeah. Ash, of course. Um, <laughs> so we should probably leave it on a positive there. I think. Um, yeah. It, it is such a positive story. Where can people um, find out about Pocket Forests? And... We have a website which we're getting back to once we're finished planting this season called pocketforests.ie and we're on Instagram and Twitter with Pocket Forests, plural. Um, and yeah, hopefully we'll be launching our 2023 campaign where you can tell us about your local neighbourhood um, tree and engage with it a little bit over the next year. And you know all about the elm at the back of our surgery. <laughs> we'll keep you updated. We'll keep you updated with um, yeah. the builders in, so I'm a bit concerned about the root system. But we'll you, have see. Out, you have to go out and give them a lecture every day about <laughs> how important that tree is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sean. It really is. Um, it was lovely coming.